And so my colleagues and I, we all read with, with a lot of interest your uh, report from earlier this year on confronting China's innovation uh, mercantilism. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on, on and ask you a couple of questions uh, on that report. Um, is it, is it I, I know that it was a, a very uh, in-depth report. Is it possible to s summarize a few key points or, or the most salient points in your opinion from the report? Sure. Um, I think the couple of the most salient points in the report are that China rejects the the 200-year-old framework of trade based on comparative advantage and is really seeking absolute advantage. Chinese don't think of themselves as engaged in global trade. They see themselves as engaged in global autarky, self-sufficiency, domination. And the second major point is that the Chinese are attempting to achieve that goal by a wide array of completely uh, unfair and illegal, in some cases, inappropriate mercantilist trade practices. And I think there's a third point, which is that the Chinese goal, which they've articulated in a number of reports, is to accelerate uh, essentially what would be a normally a 40-year process of industrial modernization and technological advancement into a 10-year window. Uh, and the only way to do that is through uh, intellectual property theft and forced technology transfer. You have to basically take what we've all developed, we meaning Europe and America, come to Japan, over you know, really a century of hard work, an enormous amount of effort and time and money to build up advanced technological capabilities that we have. Um, for them to get it, the only way for them to get that in 10 years is to just take what we have and that's the strategy that they're engaged in now. So the question that I always come to is why, well, why did policymakers allow that to happen? I, I mean, why didn't policymakers who were part of the, the uh, negotiation surrounding China's accession to the WTO, why didn't they foresee that? I mean, we knew China to some extent then. Why didn't they foresee what China was, was thinking and that China was not planning to engage in a system of global trade along the lines of what the rest of us engage in? And so that's the first question. And, and you know, hindsight is always twenty twenty. But then why don't policymakers do anything about it today? Yeah. Well, the first answer, I think, the first question, there are a number of different answers that all contribute. One is, there's a view among the economic policy elites that uh, all economies operate along, along the same principles of, of markets, prices, and supply and demand. This is a point Larry Summers has made a number of times, and he's just emblematic of the view. So, China is a country that has a market in there, or by definition, they must think about the economy and trade the way we do, mm -hmm. and they don't. They're very. They I mean they are very, very different in their orientation. So they were sort of almost like an intellectual incapability of understanding these deep cultural, political, 
Second one is this other view, when they think about when when trade is discussed, it's always discussed as uh, as if there's only opportunities and not threats. So even today, you'll hear people saying, "Well, America has to be more globalized uh, because 95% of the world's consumers are outside the U.S." Well, that's true, but so are 95% of our competitors. So yeah, you can go gain. You know, you want to open up to them. You gain their markets, but they gain your markets. Mm-hmm. So, um, we're talking, <coughs> sorry, I'm not saying it's bad. Uh, I'm, I'm actually very much pro free trade. Uh, but people tend to only think about it as a one-way opportunity. They forget that the Chinese now have the capability to come into our market. So there was a lot of that kind of almost uh, wishful, uh, blinder thinking that was going on back then. Um, and then the other component of it, I think, was was a even if policymakers were to have a, a forecast the outcomes of how the Chinese um, system has hurt our economy, they many of them still would have done it uh, because they had this belief that if we engage China in the global trading system, they will move away from their communist dictatorship ways and become a democracy, and this is good for the global economy. And if we have to pay the pay the price and suffer the pain, so be it. Um, they don't show any evidence that they're doing this. Uh, and secondly, I really I think that's too high a price to pay. So I think those were all those were some of the factors that were involved in the decision back then. Okay. And the, the fourth was obviously uh, you know companies wanting access to uh, to low cost production platforms. Um, Without really thinking, uh, without having any, you know, any serious um, look at what that would do to um, the um, the U.S. economy, uh, and also I think people 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 overestimated the the sort of the, the part of the Chinese political system which is there, but it's it's in the minority that wanted to engage in more Western-style market-oriented economics. They thought those people. Strengthened by the WTO accession. Uh, in fact, they haven't been. Um, China is still showing, as I said, you know, intense mercantilism is their dominant strategy still. So, what's happened in the last few years, which I think is why this debate has changed, is that U.S. companies are, are uh, I don't want to say becoming fed up, but they're becoming much, much more concerned with China, that, that they're really realizing that many of the promises. Haven't, haven't materialized, and particularly what China did in 2006, which is indigenous innovation to push their companies uh, at the expense of our companies. Now, U.S. multinationals are getting more uh, concerned about China than they were before. Mm-hmm. So, so that leads to the the question that I was going to ask. You know, companies are multinational, U.S.-based, and, and multinational corporations based in Europe. And elsewhere are are still in China. Is it that those uh, threats haven't fully materialized yet, or or is the opportunity of being in the China market still um, so great that despite the threats, companies feel like they have to be there? No, it's definitely the latter. In fact, it's a little bit more than that. It's a, it's a little bit like uh, the Godfather. You know, you made an offer simply cannot refuse. Yeah. Uh, China is a monopsony. Uh, you know, monopsony means it 
I was in DC last, I, I had a conversation, a really interesting conversation with Ralph Gomery about this, what, what you mentioned at, at the outset that, um, you know, China is not playing by this concept of comparative advantage. And in fact, you know, in, in reality, their global trade can be a zero sum game if, if you're, if you're playing with China. Um, but that it is because the interests of multinational corporations are not in alignment with the interests of the workers and citizens of America, for example, that we don't see a harsher stance against China. And so your idea to say, well, maybe that's true, right? But, but in, in, in reality, it's not in the interests of these companies, it's just that Faustian bargain. But if they could come together and and all form a coalition to negotiate with China, then then they would be able to do what really is in their best interest and keep their intellectual property and, and that sort of thing. Right. Right. And I think one thing, I, I disagree with Ralph a little bit and, and also with Clyde Prestowitz on this mm -hmm. point. Uh, one of the points we made in the report was why was there an alignment between U.S. Uh, multinationals and the government and labor unions back in the 80s against Japan? Because it was our multinationals against their multinationals. In other words, the Chinese weren't letting us in. China never did, they didn't do that. They let our multinationals in, so our multinationals weren't going to fight that because they benefited from it. But really since 2006, when China shifted gears, it's becoming more like a Japanese story. Uh, of the 80s than, it, than, than, than the Chinese stories of the 90s. And so that's why I think there is more potential for multinationals to to uh, at least be tacit supporters of some of these policies. One of the problems they have of being more active supporters is obviously is, is retaliation by the right. Chinese government. So I don't think we can count on them of being full-throated advocates, but I don't think there would, I don't think they're going to try to torpedo or stop, uh, you know, some Policymakers have not taken advantage of. The most, I guess, frequently cited in the popular media is labeling China a currency manipulator. Um, and, you know, discussions of the effectiveness of that aside, why haven't policymakers taken a harder stance on China? Uh, I think there's several reasons for that. I think at the one level, Secretary Geithner, uh, I don't think first, first fully understanding the damage that that Chinese currency manipulation does to the global economy or to the U.S. economy. Uh, you mentioned it's a zero-sum game. I actually think it's a negative-sum game. Uh, I think it hurts the global economy as well as the American economy by um, distorting production locations so that would be efficient from a global perspective to be in one location. But with currency manipulation, they're now uh, price competitive in a, in a globally inefficient location. That's really what happens. But I don't think Geiger realizes that. Um, secondly, I think he, and by the way, I think it's you know almost all Treasury secretaries, by the nature of their who they are, to get the job, and then their institutional or you know biases probably have the same would have the same view, which is very tragic. And why 
worried the department's interest, not the national interest, uh, which I find troubling. So that's sort of one reason. The third, the second reason is obviously I think uh, there's been a tipping point uh, when there's a lot of production that's shifted over to China. Now uh, currency appreciation for the yuan, uh, the RMB, would raise the prices for these goods. Earlier on, it would have been a lot easier to do it uh, because we would be our exports would be cheaper, our imports more expensive. But now when we're there's so much production over there, you're raising the prices on global multinational products. It's a lot harder, a lot harder to make that uh, political case. That's partly why the Republicans in the House, I think, have sided against the currency manipulation bill. What I find troubling about the Republican position and the Geithner position is, if you're a free market advocate, you fundamentally should believe that currency prices should be set by the market, uh, not by government fiat. A trade should be based on market forces. Chinese are putting, you know, basically sticking their finger in our eye on that. So it's always amazed to me why we, uh, why we uh, free market advocates uh, allow this to happen because it's the antithesis of the free market. And and I know that you mentioned this in the the report, but one of the arguments against it that I've heard often is, well. China would retaliate, and the retaliation would be worse than the situation we have now. Yeah, so, you know, the analogy we use in the report is, let's say there's a country out there, and um, they are, uh, let's go back to 1811, um, and there's a country out there that is impressing American seamen uh, and taking them onto British warships. Um, We're not going to stand for that. You know, we're going to start a war. Uh, you know, there's a country out there that decides it's going to shoot down uh, uh, our, our fighter pilots uh, who are uh, up in the air and occasionally shoot down a commercial jet. We're not going to stand for that. We're going to stand for that for one minute. And we don't care whether we start a war. Right. We would defend our nation's interests. And we have a very different view when it comes to defending our nation's economic interests. Mm-hmm. The second point, and this is actually a point that Governor Romney has made, and I give him a lot of credit for this point. He made this point in a debate early on in the uh, primaries against Governor Huntsman, where Governor Huntsman brought up this point, oh, well, we start a trade war. And Governor Romney said, look, you don't understand China, maybe he didn't say that, but what he put Huntsman said is, you, uh, the Chinese need us more than we need them, and they will cave before they start a trade war. And I, he, he, Governor Romney is absolutely right on this point. Uh, the Chinese will cave way before people cave. They depend on us much more than we depend on them. And that's not going to last forever. That's why if we're going to fight back, we've got to do it soon because eventually they're going to not be as dependent on us. I don't believe they'll start a trade war. Uh, The Chinese fundamentally have backed down every single time we have pressed them on where where they know we're serious. We're not messing around. They back down every single time. And I don't see any evidence to suggest that they won't. Now, to be fair, the way we have to do this, though, is we can't do it. We, we can do it unilaterally, and, and ultimately, if we have to, we should. But fundamentally, we've got to, we shouldn't do an Iraq. <laughs> uh, uh, we've got to do a Gulf War One, uh, And the Gulf War One was, you know, uh, President Bush first went out and built the coalition. Mm-hmm. That's what we've got to do against China. We build the coalition to say, you know, enough is enough. You can't do this, and we're going to put sanctions on you. Europeans, I think, are increasingly open to being part of that coalition, although they're 
a little reticent, but could be, but could twist their arm a bit. And that, that leadership has not really been there to do that. Right, right. So, it, when thinking about the World Trade Organization, you, you mention it a, a, a bit in the report. Is it... Is can the WTO work with China as a member? Uh, no, not, it can't. It can't. It can't work uh, fully implement its promises. It, 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 it works at a suboptimal level. It allows certain disputes to be resolved. Uh, not to say that it's completely ineffective, but it cannot achieve its promise. Uh, the Chinese strategy now, uh, since WTO, has been to infiltrate uh, multi uh, global multilateral organizations. Uh, the fact that their former central banker now is a major figure in the World Bank. Um, I don't know if you know the story or not. World Bank staff report was uh, going to say that China was a currency manipulator. Very important. Sorry, I apologize. It's the IMF. IMF staff report was going to say that. That's what it is. And uh, because of the influence of this very senior Chinese official in the IMF, uh, they squashed that report. So the Chinese strategy now is to, is to infiltrate or you know, participate in, if you will, multinational organizations, which is fine if they want to stand up and take responsibility and be a global, a, 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 you know, responsible global player. Right. They don't want to do that. They, they, they want to be part of the multinational organization, multilateral organizations, influence them to their to their to their interest, but not really be a global player. And I think that we see that in the WTO. So the WTO really uh, won't push China as strongly as um, as they should. So that's kind of the political dynamic because they don't want to alienate China. Uh, and the, the, the second dynamic is more of a uh, of a procedural one. One Chinese official was say quoted we quoted as saying. You know, when we got into WTO, we had to you know, cut our tariffs, although our tariff section are still high, uh, but still better than they were. We had to make some changes. It, the way they look at it is it just forced them to find new ways of getting around these things. So they got the benefits of the WTO, which is to get in and get access to markets, but they also got protection from the WTO. We cannot now unilaterally go after China. Because they're in the dip, so they 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 got a great deal. They got protection from from uh, from being uh, gone after, and then on top of that, there's a whole set of uh, non-tariff barriers that they are the masters of. I mean, they, you know, they could write a book on this, and, and they could, they could be a McKinsey consultant and just consult with other countries. How, how do you manipulate the trade system to your own advantage? We'll, we'll, we'll sell you our services. Um, but you know standards manipulation IP theft. Where where are the WTO cases on that? Uh, partly because there's no WTO uh, regime for some of these things, or they are. You know there is on. Um, you know for example there's there's a there's a uh, the BITS treaty uh, bilateral investment treaty for China. Um, my own view is that's a very weak uh, treaty proposal on our behalf on our part. Uh, so we've already gone into that negotiation in a weakened position, and it'll get weaker still. And, and you know, we, we should be able to go to the WTO and, and say, "You guys are forcing the Chinese. You are forcing American companies to transfer technology uh, contingent upon market access." 
and the WTO will say, well, you're not allowed to do that. The Chinese will say, oh, we're not really doing that. Right. The WTO, oh, I guess you're not. We, we can't find a regulation. Right. Uh, so we're not going to do it. Well, the fact is they don't have, they're not stupid people. They're not, they're not, not going to have a regulation about it. They're just going to do it. Right. And, and you know, we, we need to be looking, that's why I do think that um, um, the BPSA, Business Software Alliance, recently had an op-ed uh, which I thought was very good, uh, arguing for results-oriented trade with regard to China. And really, fundamentally, that's what we've got to move towards. Uh, we're, we're, we believe we're committed to a process-oriented trade regime. And that works with um, Canada. It works with uh, Europe, mostly. Um, because, you know, fundamentally, those are rule of law countries. Uh, they'll push the envelope, but still rule of law countries. It doesn't work with countries that aren't rule of law countries like China. Can only be a results-oriented trading regime, and uh, we can keep trying to tweak the rules, keep trying to bring cases, which we should. Don't get me wrong, but fundamentally, we've got to we've got to just say these are the results we want. We expect them to happen, and if not, there's going to be some penalties. So, so then the question is, does the existence of the WTO actually do damage? Because, as you said, it it gives China protection. So if the United States is going to play by WTO rules, then then how do we, you know, then then it's always our unfair advantage if they're they're not playing by the rules. So right, then do you say WTO, we just break up the WTO? Well, we have one hand tied behind our back. Right. That's essentially what being in the WTO is. You give up some of your autonomy. The Chinese, they don't have a hand tied behind their right. back, really. Uh, I think that what we should do instead, what we've proposed is, a, is an alternative WTO um, that we would lead. I mean, you know, when, we create, when the WTO was created, by the way, by and large, it was created by free trade-oriented, Ricardian, competitive, competitive, competitive advantage countries. Right. And then as all these other mercantilist countries joined in, it's been weakened. I think we've got to go back to sort of founding principles and restart with a set of countries who are willing to commit to a uh, market-based comparative uh, advantage trade regime, uh, no currency manipulation, no tied, uh, no minimal IP theft, minimal force tech, no force tech transfer, no standards manipulation, all these kinds of things. And then uh, let these countries in uh, who want to play by those rules and increasingly shut out China how that, what's the end game there, I'm not sure, but I think that's an important thing we can start to do to send a pretty clear message to start to exclude China from, uh, from this system. So that would be the U.S. exiting from the WTO and forming this alternative organization? No, I wouldn't exit from the WTO. Okay. I, I, I think that the WTO still provides, um, it, it still provides certain benefits. It, 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 one of the things it does provide is it, it's a forum litigate these things. I think more this is a, this is a, if you will, two things. One is it's a, it's a place where countries would all get together and we'd have, you know, I'd love to have, frankly, a, uh, kind of a European, North American free trade agreement. Zero tariffs, uh, you know, just let it rip. Uh, but really, really strict rules for, for obeying all that. Um, and then what you hope to do with that start to exclude China, and, um, and the WTO becomes just less relevant, uh, less stuff gets litigated there, and more stuff gets litigated 
framework. And then eventually the WTO either gets reformed uh, and people put new uh, new powers in it, uh, or it, it just becomes a appendage like organization like the UN. Right. Right. And is there political will to, to go in that direction? Uh, not right now, but I think it's, you know, ideas have uh, power sometimes, as John Stuart Mill said. Um, I think the administration's efforts to create the TPP are in that spirit, although we just issued a report last week on the TPP, which argued that a number of those countries are on the three up one watch list and uh, have other real serious problems. So I'm not sure that they're going to be real. I'm not sure they're going to get religion overnight if they're in a TPP. But by and large, a TPP-like regime is not, it's not a bad idea. We would argue, though, that we should start with that with the TAP, a transatlantic partnership. There is at least some interest from the Europeans in moving in that direction. Okay. So I don't think it's a totally bizarre uh, unrealistic idea at this point in time. Just, I, I think the fundamental point that people haven't accepted, there's the people involved in China are sort of in one of three camps. They're in the camp of, you know, China's not really that bad matter. Uh, there are fewer of those people now left. Then there's the camp of, yeah, they're really doing some bad things, uh, some problematic things, but we've got to give the process more time uh, in the WTO and also through bilateral negotiation, you know, we'll just educate them more. And then there's other people like me who think it's probably not going to work and uh, got to take more radical uh, dramatic steps. That they're just, they're just, they don't see. I, I don't trust them to sort of do this on their own without real external pressure. Mm -hmm. So I, I think more once you move from camp two to camp three, then a whole set of new, new options open up. One thing I really liked about your um, Confronting China's uh, Innovation Mercantilism report is that I, I felt like it probably was pretty successful at getting people from Camp 2 to Camp 3 by listing out, you know, what are the claims? What, what are the responses that people in Camp 2 might give? And here are all the reasons why those are, are false, basically. I, I thought that was very effective. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. A lot of the, a lot of those um, I got when I was in China. I took very careful notes when I was in, in meetings with various ministries and things, and the, and I started to hear the same rationales or uh, spin, if you will, and justification. And, and really, uh, you're sitting there when you confront the Chinese uh, uh, with some of it. You know, they'll make an argument that really, really, in court law, they have no basis on stand on, uh, they, you know, they'll kind of cave sometimes uh, on those, and, and we don't, in my experience with U.S. trade relationships with China, a negotiation, we don't really confront them on those, we let them spin those arguments out without challenging the veracity of them, the logic of them, and I think we just got every time they say these nonsensical things like, uh, you know, we've got to do indigenous innovation for people to save the planet. You know, you just got to push back and say that, you know, that's, that's not logical and here's why it's not logical. Well, and it's interesting to read in, in the WTO reports on, you know, how China has, has done with its, uh, its commitments and, 
like you said, you know, so they don't have a pol uh, uh, an indigenous po innovation policy on the books, or, or a, excuse me, a, a foreign transfer requirement on the books. So the WTO report says there's no foreign technology transfer requirement on the books, which would lead some to believe that then China doesn't require foreign technology transfer. But when you talk to the companies, of course, they say, well, it's not penned in any agreement, but that's, that's, that's the deal. Right. And that's a fundamental failure of the WTO. I mean, it really is. The WTO should be ashamed of themselves for saying, for putting that in the report. I mean, you can say that, and then you can say, but the practice on the ground right. is 180 degrees opposite of that. I mean, they, they, should, they know that. They should be responsible enough to, to talk about what's really, really going on. You know, part of the problem with the Geneva culture, uh, Geneva culture is very, very much of a don't rock the boat, everybody get along culture. And, um, you know, that's fine when, you know, you're trying to avoid a war. You know, I get the penny. You know, you want to calm down, let's not go to war. Wars are bad. But when you're, you know, talking about trade and, and countries that are really, really abusing it, you got to be willing to call people out. And, and they, they, they don't. 